trials. God often compares our trials with fire. Um, and I can't help but wonder if this doesn't have something to do with what these young men went through in this passage of Scripture. Job chapter 23 and verse 10, Job spoke of being tried by God as gold is refined by fire. And he said in Job 23 and verse number 10, when God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And a, an allusion there to gold being refined by fire. Then in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote and said that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ our Savior. Later in that same book of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4, he wrote in verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And so when you're in the midst of a trial, and I really believe this is true, you're in the midst of a trial, that's when you really come to understand more than any other time that it really is like a fire. You're really going through it. Understand why the Bible often compares the difficulties of life to fiery trials. Fires can have very two, or two very different impacts on your life. Either destroy you or it can refine you. If I stick a piece of paper in the fire, it turn to ash. If I stick a piece of gold into the fire, it won't be destroyed. It will be purified. See the difference? When you go through the fiery trials of life, what will determine what will happen to you is what you're made of. What type of stuff are you made of? Wearsby said, False faith withers in times of trial, but true faith takes deeper roots, grows, and brings glory to God. And so the fiery trials of your life, all that they reveal, what you're really made of, that's what they reveal. Reveal what's going on on the, on, the, uh, on the inside in your heart. See, the truth is you can put on a show for everybody else, but when the fire, when, the foot, when, you're, when your foot is put to the flame, when you go through the fiery trials of life, that's when you're really going to discover type of character you really have and uh, where you're at in your spiritual development we could say as well let me read you a passage of scripture first corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 through 15 the bible says for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is jesus christ now if any man build upon this foundation gold silver precious stones wood hay stubble Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And so I ask you, as you think about the fiery trials of life, and some of you are really going through it right now, I know. You've been through it. You're not, maybe not going through it right now. But you can understand because you've been through the trials of life. What I really want to know from you tonight is what have the fiery trials of your life revealed about your faith? What we see in the life of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in this passage of Scripture in Daniel 3 is what their faith looked like in the fire. I wonder tonight what your faith will look like when you go through the fiery trials of of life. And so as we study the example of the faith of these men in this passage, I want you to consider four examples of true faith. And I'm calling it true faith because it's faith that is proven through the fiery trials of life. 
What will your faith look like when it, when it is tested by fire? Adrian Rogers, and I've said this before in this series, but I'll say it again. He always used to say, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. It is easy to say you trust God when everything's going well. A lot different, everything starts falling apart. When you don't understand why God's allowing what He's allowing, a little bit different then. What does true faith look like? We're going to look at faith under fire tonight. And as we go, go into this passage, why don't we bow our heads together and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts, especially for you. If you're under a trial, a fiery trial right now, or perhaps one of you, one person you love is in a fiery trial. I want you to consider these truths and how the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart. And let's invite him to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to bow before uh, you in prayer. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to preach your word from such a wonderful passage of Scripture. And I pray you'd give me liberty. I pray, God, that you would have freedom to speak through me as a channel to your people to communicate the wonderful uh, truth in your word. Lord, we won't even be able to tap into the depth that is in this passage of Scripture. But I do pray you'd give us what we need tonight. And uh, Lord, just give us that, that bread we need to give us sustenance and strength uh, for this day and uh, for this week. And I pray, God, that you would, you would just work through the message tonight, especially for those who are going through trials. We'll encourage their heart as they look at the example of these young men who are strong in faith. May we be a church uh, built of people that are strong in faith as well. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Four examples of true faith tonight. Number one, if you're taking notes, true faith stands up. True faith stands up. Over 20 years had passed between chapters 2 and 3. And I think a lot of times we misunderstand that. Because a lot of times you hear, it, you hear the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being a story about the three Hebrew boys. They're not boys anymore. They're men. And uh, that, that, that shows a contrast here that a lot of times we miss. But over most commentators agree that over 20 years had elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And by this time, Nebuchadnezzar was very well established as the king of Babylon and as the supreme ruler of the world of his time. And so this allowed for plenty of time to, uh, to uh, let the success that Nebuchadnezzar had experienced to get to his head. And let's face it, we'll see this in chapter 4. He had let it get to his head, and he was a very prideful man. And we'll see it demonstrated in this chapter as well. And he had forgotten something Daniel had told him 20 years before and interpreted his dream. And Daniel had told him in Daniel chapter 2, the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He'd forgotten who'd given him the power that he had. And so after he'd experienced all this success, the Bible tells us the king decided to do something. And let's look at the first three verses of chapter number 3. If you're there with me, say amen. The Bible says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits, and breadth thereof six, uh, six cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Up. And so to celebrate his success as, a, as an emperor over, over the known world of his time, 
King Nebuchadnezzar decided he was going to set up this massive golden statue, this massive golden structure. According to the scripture here, this statue was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. We've got an image of someone who portrayed perhaps what this, uh, what this looked like here in the Babylonian plain there. And, uh, and so uh, the Bible reveals to us it was 90 feet high and 9 feet why? Do you see how, well, just, just exactly how tall is that? Well, um, if you go to Montana, in the, in the mountains of Montana, there's a statue there called Our Lady of the Rockies. Maybe some of you have been up there and seen it. We've got a picture of that statue as well, uh, standing up on top of that mountaintop. That's a 90-foot tall statue right there, and you can see it for miles and miles. And probably even farther you could see it there because it's actually standing on top of the mountain. Um, but uh, there's a comparison there. Suffice it to say... It's huge. It's in, it's in a plane. It's in, it's in a plane uh, that the Bible notes to us as being the plane of Dora. Now, no doubt Nebuchadnezzar, when he'd gone in to conquer Egypt, he'd seen some of the structures there, the colossal monuments that they had sent up, st- stood up like the one of Ramses the Great in Egypt. He'd seen the pyramids, and he thought, I want one of those to establish for my kingdom so people will come and see how great I was. And so he goes back and he decides he wants to set up this great golden statue. Now, it wasn't likely all made of gold, although it's possible that they had that much gold in his empire. Um, It's likely just a wooden structure overlaid with gold that was more keeping to the times that he lived in. Emily and I went and actually saw a gold statue in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, uh, that, That was, what was it depicted of? It doesn't matter, but it's, it's interesting to think about these things and, and how this, and how this uh, was constructed. And so uh, the actual proportions of this image, it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It, doesn't, it wouldn't fit that it was made to look like a human being, okay? Um, and most people think it was one of the Babylonian uh, go- uh, goddesses uh, whose image I'm not going to show publicly, Okay. Uh, but that will put it in your minds of uh, maybe it wasn't just the best statue to have 90 feet tall sticking up in the air. Um, but there it was, okay? Um, and so that being what it was, he decided to set up this statue. This golden statue, the Bible says, was set up in the plain of Dura. This was a place about six miles outside of the city of Babylon. And the ruins of some of the mounts that were uh, in that plain are still there to this day. You can go and see where they were at. Of course, the statue's not still there to this day. There's a picture of uh, where some of the ruins are at there in the plain of Dura on a little bit of a cliff where the plain was at. And so it could be seen for miles and miles and miles around this 90-foot statue. And the king, as he sets up this statue, he wanted to establish this idol as a focal point of the religious worship of his empire. He'd conquered many nations around the known world of his time. And now he wanted to rally all the nations to one idol that was going to be their focal point of worship. We see the early roots of what we could call a one-world government Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to establish. By the way, you rewind history, you go back to Babel, same place as Babylon. That's exactly what they were trying to do then. And what did God do? He confounded the languages and dispersed people all over the earth. 
Now Nebuchadnezzar is trying to conquer the world and bring all the world to Babylon and establish an idol for everyone to have to worship. And so to bring the kingdom together around the worship of this image, he invited every official in the land to come to the dedication of this ceremony. And let's just suffice it to say an invitation from Nebuchadnezzar was not optional. Don't turn it down or you die. I mean, how often do we hear Nebuchadnezzar say, if you don't do what I want, I'll cut you in pieces and turn your house into an outhouse, okay? And uh, so there he, there he is. None of the officials turned him down. They all show up to the kingdom, and there's several names given for these officials. I'm not parked here long, but it's interesting to me to think about the ranks and the officials in the Babylonian kingdom. He talks about the princes. The princes would be the, uh, the, the satraps or the, the chief representatives uh, throughout the districts of the kingdoms, maybe like senators of our day. The governors were the prefects or the military commando- commanders of that time. The captains were the governors over the regions and uh, over the civil districts. The judges would have been the chief arbitrators in the land, much like our judges today. The treasurers were the superintendents over the public treasuries throughout all the different districts and cities throughout Babylon. The counselors would have been the lawyers, the interpreters of the law. The sheriffs were the magistrates uh, ruling over the local cities and districts. And the rulers would have been all the lower class bureaucrats or officials scattered throughout the land of Babylon, including the likes of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so suffice it to say, anyone who was anyone was supposed to be there. Everyone was invited except for one notable person, Daniel, absent from chapter 3. Now, I don't have time to park here tonight. There's a lot of speculation as to why. God doesn't tell us why. We know Daniel's character. And so I presume from my study of the scripture that for some odd reason, Daniel was exempted and he was not there during this period. And there's lots of debate as to... Uh, as to why, that, uh, why he wasn't there, I won't, I'll not park there, but I just, that's, I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe he just wasn't there. Because uh, if he was, he'd been right there by his buddies, not bowing. And uh, so all these officials were, were invited, and we know that these were all political officials. And yet this assembly is not strictly a political assembly. This assembly was a religious assembly. By the way, a lot of the political assemblies of our day, if you go to them, I'm feeling more and more religious. I'll get out of the weeds there, but you just hear me out on this, okay? This was a religious assembly with, uh, with, with how it was being treated. An orchestra was put together, and I love music, so I read about these instruments, and I think about the, in- the, the ancient instrumentation um, that the Bible talks to us about here. You see it listed for us in verse number 5. At what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut? Now, what a great instrument there, okay? Sackbut. <laughs> Sultry, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship. Here's all these instruments being mentioned. What's happening? Well, there's an orchestra being put together. This is not just a political assembly. This is a worship service. And people are being told, you need, when the music is played and the emotions begin getting stirred, to bow down and worship this idol. Make no mistake, what Nebuchadnezzar was after here was creating a religion that everyone had to observe. This was not a mere political assembly. It was a religious assembly. You'll note that the word worship is used 11 times in this chapter. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it's used more in this chapter than any other chapter of Scripture. Worship. It's all centered on the worship of the wrong God. You see music as a center point 
for all of it. And this isn't, this isn't a message on music, but let me just say, music has always been a powerful force to move people to act in certain ways. Music can, be, can fill your heart with patriotism like it did this morning for us. Music can lead your spirit to worship God. Yet music can also move you to worship idols. Have wrong desires in your heart. Depending on the beat of the song and the, the message of the song and, and uh, the, way that it, the way that it moves your spirit. So be very careful about the music you listen to. And uh, I could park on that a long time. We preached to our teenagers about it uh, not too long ago. But it is an important thing that every person needs to understand. And so we see this music being used to sway the people to worship this idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when all the leaders from around the empire arrived, they were given some very specific instructions. Let me summarize the instructions for you. Ready for this? They were told, bow or burn. That's it. Let's read about it, verses 4 through 6. The Bible says, <coughs> Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, sultry, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Now apparently in that plain of Dora, there was a furnace, something uh, like what we would, uh, like our modern, modern day uh, lime kiln type furnace. It was a tall, narrow furnace. I think we have a picture of one of these furnaces here. If we could throw that up there for everybody to see, and uh, they'll get it here in a minute. But it was, it was, a, it was a tall, narrow type of furnace um, that had a big opening at the front. It's the only type of furnace um, that, that, we're a, that we're able to conceive in our minds as being comparable to fulfill what the story demands with Nebuchadnezzar being able to see in and four people being able to walk around in the midst of it. But you can see the small opening there at the bottom in this tall furnace. It was built into the side of a mound and there are several mounds there in the plains of Dura that would fit this style of description of this style of furnace. So apparently there on the plains of Dura, they had some furnaces or at least one furnace. And there in that, in that, in that furnace, and I no doubt Nebuchadnezzar as he sent the herald up to declare hey, bow to my idol or burn, that furnace would have been in view. All the people saw the fire burning. They saw the golden statue. And when the orchestra began to play, what did they do? Verse 7. The Bible says in verse 7, Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, sultry, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. All bowed, didn't they? This was, we could say, the culturally acceptable thing to do. Everybody was bowing. Everybody was doing it. So the expectation was that everyone should be doing it because it was the edict that was given. And yet, there were three individuals that did not bow, right? I'm thanking God for that here today. Proper, their proper names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You all know how I feel about that. Here, their names are recorded as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because, remember, the beginning, the beginning of chapter 2, the language shift shifted in the book of Daniel from Hebrew to Aramaic. The chapters that are being written to us here were focused to the Gentile nations as a declaration to the Gentile world that Jehovah God is the true God. So their Aramaic names are used here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what we find is that when everybody else bowed, these three men stood up. 
They, did, they refused to bow. They had purpose in their heart. You go back to 1.8 of Daniel. They had purpose in their heart that they were going to do some things and they were not going to do some things. And they had decided they were going to live for God from the time that they were young people. And so here, when they're told to bow to a false idol, their minds no doubt went back to Exodus chapter number 20, where Jehovah God had commanded, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make... Uh, shall not make unto thee any graven images or any likenesses of anything that is in heaven above or that, or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. And boy, they knew what the law was. And they knew what the first of the Ten Commandments were. And they decided in their heart, I don't care what anybody else tells me I have to do. I ain't bowing to any idol. I bow to Jehovah God and to Jehovah God alone. So I ain't going to bow. And we see this, this faith demonstrated from these young men. And let me say, in the midst of a culture that is bowing down to the demands of our day, the people of true faith will be those who determine to stand up. Like Joshua of old, who in his day, in the midst of his generation, in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he said these words. He says that if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, we'll choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're going to serve the Lord. And boy, God give us some men and women of true faith in the midst of a culture that's trying to get us to bow to all of their demands who would be willing to stand up for the truth of God's word. I could preach on this a long time tonight. Listen to me. We've got churches all over the place that are bowing to political correctness. We've got churches all over the place that are bowing to the cultural demands of our day. We've got churches all over the place and Christians who are bowing to the demands of our society to say, well, you need to, you need to drop your uh, standards and you need, to, uh, you need to water down your scripture and you need to uh, water down the messages that you preach on Sunday. Don't preach about hell. Don't preach about sin. Preach a feel-good message that will help people feel good about themselves. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to bow. And we as the people of God should determine in our hearts, we're not going to bow. We've got the homosexual agenda and we've got the, uh, uh, we've got the, I could go on and on about all the agendas that are taking place in our day and time. And I'm going to tell you something. The Bible's said the same thing that it said from the time that it was written. And we don't need to rewrite the Bible. We just need to allow the Bible to tell us what we're supposed to do. You can stand on the promises of God, friend. They decide, I'm going to do what God said. I don't care what you say you're going to do to me. I'm going to stand because I believe in God. I'm going to stand because I trust in God. I was encouraged to read this week, and I forgot to bring it down with me. I was encouraged to read uh, uh, today in our, in our newspaper. Um, it, there was a headline. Here's what the headline said on the newspaper. The headline said, Residents, pastor, asked to reinstate meeting for the fellowship of Christian athletes. And I read that, and I thought, I wonder if that's talking about who I thought it was. It was talking about who I was talking about. It was talking about. Brother Reese has been going over there trying to help our young people in the public school. And the article said this about Brother Reese. It said, we're not asked, uh, it is quoting Brother Reese in the article. He had said at that meeting, we're not asking you to make an easy choice. We're asking you to make the right choice. He said a lot more than that. You know what? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people of God right here in Cortez, Colorado, deciding, I'm not going to bend, I'm not going to bow. Oh, well, the governor said, the government said that we're not supposed to do this anymore. Well, guess what? Got a young man here who decided he's, he's not going to just go along with what everybody else tells him he has to do. You can do that too at your workplace. You can do that too in your household. You can do that too in your context because the men and women of true faith don't stand up.
That's what the Bible's showing us here from the example of these young men. Now notice when these men stood up, their enemies, they took notice, didn't they? I have half a mind to think that they'd walked up to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah before the worship service began for this false idol. And they said, you going to bow? No doubt. Hananiah speaks up and says, Listen, I don't care what, you, what, what they say, I ain't bowing to that idol. When the music began to play, there all those hypocrites with. They fell down and worshipped the idol with an eye opened up like most of you do during the invitation at church. Right? They were watching. Boy, those three men, you imagine over that whole plane, everyone's bowing, just three people standing alone. Three people. Thousands and thousands of people. And three people stood up and said, we are not going to bow. And the enemies took notice. And notice what happened in verse number 8. Verse number 8, the Bible says, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Now that word accused is a very interesting Aramaic word. It literally speaks of devouring someone to pieces. That's what the word means. We read it accused here. It's a lot, it, there's a lot more to that word than meets the eye. But they accused the Jews and they spake to the king Nebuchadnezzar and they said, O king, live, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the, all those instruments, okay, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Boy, they were just looking for the opportunity to tear God's people down, weren't they? They're just looking for the opportunity to tear them down. Let me tell you something. If you choose to stand for God, it will come with opposition. If you are going against the current, you better believe you're going to face some pressure. You better believe you're going to face some opposition. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, in fact, it's a promise. God says, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you are not being resisted, even persecuted for your faith, you ought to sincerely ask yourself if you're going in the right direction. Because the Bible says all who will live godly in Christ Jesus are going to face some opposition in one way or another at some point down the line. Yet these men, they chose to stand in spite of the consequences. They chose to stand in spite of what they were told was going to happen to them. By the way, they didn't back down just because these guys came along and said, hey, we're going to tell the king about you. They kept standing kept saying they still didn't bow when the opposition and pressure began to rise. And here's what Wearsby said. He said, faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within you, the circumstances around you, or the consequences before you. Like that. That's what faith requires. And sadly, I believe for many of us, our experience is not like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Our experience is a lot more like Peter. Jesus was being tried. When our feet are put to the fire, deny we even know him. Thankfully, hey, he was restored, wasn't he? He was faced the fire later faithfully for the Lord. And he, by the way, he's the one that wrote about the fiery trials in 1 Peter. Okay? They have had some failure in this area, but no failure is final. Now God can give you trials and you can make a decision to practice true faith and standing for God in the midst of your trial. Because true faith stands up. A lot of that was introductory, so we're going to move a lot quicker in these last three. True faith, not only does it stand up, but true faith speaks up. True faith speaks up. 
Now, the Chaldeans had internally directed their argument against these Hebrew men to incite the anger of the king. Do you think it worked? You better believe it worked. Look, look at verse number 13. This is what the Bible says in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and his fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sack, but sultry, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, thank you very much, ye shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? The king demanded the culprits be brought before him. And here comes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king looked at them, and these were men that he trusted. These are men who had been in a high position of authority in his government for over 20 years. And he looks at them and he says, is this true? Are you really defying me? Are you really refusing to bow down to my idols? And apparently they'd earned some respect from him because Nebuchadnezzar was the type of guy that would just say off with his head. He didn't do that with these men. They'd apparently earned some respect by the king, and so he gives them a second chance, which I'm sure was a very unprecedented thing for Nebuchadnezzar to do. And he looks at them and he says, okay, if you guys are ready this time, maybe you didn't hear, maybe you didn't understand, but you have to bow to the idol. And if you don't, I'm going to burn you alive, Okay. And so let's try this again. Start the music. In my mind, that's what's happening here. But Knesser is talking to them about these things. And in that moment, boy, it would have been easy, wouldn't it? Go along with it. Everybody else is doing it. No one else is going to criticize me because everybody else already bowed. In that moment, it would have been, good. It would have been easy to reason in your mind. Well, you know, you know uh, I'll bow physically, but I won't mean it in my heart. Come up with all kinds of excuses. They didn't give excuses. They stood on faith. And here's what they did. Look at their answer in verse 16. This is incredible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, all answered. I don't know who was the spokesperson. Maybe they had rehearsed their answer. I don't know. They said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. If not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up in an act of true faith. These three men spoke up about what they believed in, because that's what true faith does. True faith speaks up. And here's what they said. They said, O king, we are not careful to answer you. That word careful in the Aramaic, it's the, it's the Aramaic word uh, kashak. And it, 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 it literally means to, uh, to have need of care. And what they're literally saying is here, we don't need to think about our answer. We don't need to be careful about what we're about to say to you. We're absolutely certain in the ability of their God to take care of them. And so they said, we don't need to pray about it, okay? We don't need time to give you an answer. You're asking us to do something we know God doesn't want us to do. And so let me just give it to you bluntly, Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is what we're going to do. And they told the king, our God is able to deliver us. I love that. Because the king had just said, who is the God that's going to deliver you out of my hands, out of my power? And they said, well, our God will deliver us. They believed that God could deliver them through that fire before they ever stepped in that fire. 
And that's an interesting thing to me. Now, I'm sure that they had no clue what God was about to do. They believed that God would deliver them. And what they told the king is, he can deliver us if he wants to. You can be sure, regardless of what happens, he will deliver us out of your power, king. Even if they died, guess where they went? Won't under Nebuchadnezzar's power anymore. I love what they said, and I think it's in verse number 18. They said, what's the first three words of verse 18? But if not. What a statement. Lying on the sovereignty of God. But if not, be it known to you, king, we're not going to bow. We are not going to bow. And so even if God decides not to physically save us from the fire, we will still not bow to anyone but the one true God. Here's the application. Listen to me very closely here. It is harder to exercise faith. You can't understand what God is doing. It's harder to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's what Job said, isn't it? It's harder to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's what Jesus said. Hey, it's harder to say, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. <coughs> God decided not to heal me. I'm going to take glory in the fact that he decided not to heal me. That's what Paul said. Hard to say. But if not. And though they most certainly knew that their decision to speak up would result in most certain wrath from the king, they still chose to do it. Still chose to speak up for what was right. And I can't help but wonder if they had the passage of Scripture in their mind. It's in your notes, I believe. Isaiah chapter 43, which would have been available to them at that time. Isaiah 43 and verse 1, the Bible says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And look at this, when thou walkest through, what? Fire, shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I can't help but wonder if they had that verse in mind when they spoke to the king. They said, king, I don't care what you say. We're going to tell you what God says, and we're going to stand for what's right. Because that's what true faith does. True faith confesses trust in God and follows him regardless of the consequences. I am going to stand on God no matter what you say you're going to do to me. That's what these, these young men said. And like the Apostle Paul of old, our faith ought to compel us to say, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Like the prophet Jeremiah, who through all the hardship that he faced, came to a point in his life in Jeremiah chapter 20, 20 and verse 9, and he said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was like uh, was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. I could not be silent. And in the midst of a culture that is trying to force the people of God into silence, may we as the people of true faith in God's word resolve to speak up. Listen, the culture tells you, no, you can't say that. That's not politically correct. No, you can't preach that because that doesn't go along with what people want you to say during this day and time. No, you can't go door to door. You can't solicit. You can't do these things in our day and time anymore. And they try to silence the people of God and tell us to sequester our faith. But our faith should compel us, if it is a true faith, to continue to speak out even when it is trying to be suppressed.
So we see true faith stands up. True faith speaks up. By the way, some of you in your workplace, you ought to speak up. Stuff that those men are talking about, that filth, you can speak up. But I don't know what they're going to say about me. Who cares what they're going to say about you? My dad was an example of this to me. I remember dad coming home and he'd be honest with me and he'd say, boy, they're really giving me a hard time at work today. And he'd tell me the types of names they were calling him. Fast forward 30 years, same guys that gave him such a hard time, call him every week. Roy, will you pray for me? Speak up. That's what true faith does. Stand up for what's right. Here's the third thing. True faith steps out. True faith steps out. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he was mad before. I think we could say he's ticked off now. Verse 19. The Bible says, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that, that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Hey, listen, the furnace was hot. Nebuchadnezzar, he was hotter, okay? He was ticked off here. He gave a command, and in the midst of his fury, he commanded the furnace to first be heated seven times more than was customary. Now, if it was a lime kiln furnace, like most commentators suspect it was, this furnace could already be heated up to incredible amounts of heat under normal conditions. And imagine how hot it was seven times more. In fact, some commentators disagree on the fact that whether or not it was even possible for them to do what the king asked him to do. He asked him to make it seven times hotter uh, than it was, you, that was customarily treated. And if he had been thinking straight and he wasn't so, so hot-headed and angry, he actually would have told them to make the fire cooler. It would have actually been more torturous. To have them slowly burned to death. As it stood, as soon as they touched the fire, they were going to be incinerated. And uh, he was just ticked off at these young men. And as the furnace was getting heated up, Nebuchadnezzar looked over and said, Let me have the strongest men that I've gotten here. I mean, give me the strongest men in the army. Get them up here. I want you to bind these guys up. Don't even take their clothes off them. Just bind them up and throw them in the fire like a bundle. Boy, that's what those men did. They came up and they began to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no doubt by their hands and their feet, and they took them up as the furnace was getting heated, and the Bible says they brought them over to the fire, and they threw them in like big bundling, bundling bags right down into that fire. And uh, can you imagine the scene that was taking place here? Now, it's interesting, the Bible tells us the furnace was so hot that as they went to go toss them into the fire, the, 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 the gate of that, the door of that fire it opened up. However it did, it, can, it, it burned up those strong men. Had the strongest men available to Nebuchadnezzar, very symbolic, strongest men in the world being tried by that fire, couldn't stand it. You know what? The world give you their strongest. They can't endure the things that people of God can endure because we have God and they don't. Mark on that a little while, but I'm already out of time, so we're going to keep going, okay? The Bible says they were thrown into the fire, and by all accounts, chapter should end right here, dead. We know the story. That's not what happened. By human terms, it should have ended there. But let's look at verse 24. Verse 24, the Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, or astonished, or dumbfounded, or alarmed. 
and rose up in haste and spake and said to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And answered and said unto the king, True. Well, that's, that's right, O king. Answered and said, Lo, behold, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. As they were thrown into that fire, the king expected for their cries to sound out in pain for what they were going through. But there were no cries taking place. That alarmed him. As he turned to look into that little circular opening inside of that furnace, what was even more alarming was he was looking into a fire and there were not three bundles bound and burning in that fire, but there were four men loose and walking in the fire. Imagine that scene. Boy, be like, be like me elk, elk, elk hunting, okay? I'm looking at a bush, and boy, it sure looks like an elk when I'm just looking at it, okay? I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar standing there going, you guys seeing what I'm seeing? They didn't have binoculars, but I would, I've been asking for them. I was him. Give me the binoculars. Let me Looking inside that, he's looking inside that fire and he cannot believe what is in front of his eyes at that time. And what's interesting to me in particular, Nebuchadnezzar looks at his counselors and says, I don't see, I don't see three. There's four men in that fire and they're walking around. And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. Yeah. Now, tidbit here. So the translations of the Bible, newer translations of the Bible, translate that phrase as a son of the gods. Be careful about what kind of Bible you use. It's what we use the King James Version of the Bible. The Son of God. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I truly believe that. And uh, several things we could say about that, but we don't have time. But here's Jesus in the fire. And by the way, how many of you are thankful when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah went through the fiery trial, Jesus was standing right there with them. Right in the middle of the fire. And whatever trial you may be going through today, you are not alone in the fire. When you walk through the fire, I'll be there with you, Isaiah 43 says. What a great reassuring thing. The only thing that got burned on those men when they fell down in that fire were the bind, were the, were the, was the ropes, the binding that they had been bound with. The only thing that burned up when they went into the fire was the thing the world had tried to use to keep them down. Listen, a lot of times when you go through the fires of life, that's exactly what God will do. Refine you of all the things that don't belong. When you come forth like, from the fire, like Job said, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. There were these, there were these men, they were, they were walking in the fire. And after witnessing this miraculous ordeal, verse 26, what happened? Verse 26, the Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach! Meshach and Abednego, you servants, and look at this. The most high God, come forth and come hither. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged whoever their God was, was higher than the rest of them. He was the most high God. Remember earlier when he said, who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? He stumbled, wasn't he? He said, the servants of the most high God, come out of there. What does the Bible say at the end of verse 26? Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire, and the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Boy, he asked them to come out of that fire. And these young men who had put their steadfast faith in God, they didn't know what was going to happen, and they got thrown into that fire, and in a beautiful scene, they walked out of the fire. 
Listen, these young men, they did not bow. They did not budge. Because of that, they did not burn. What a wonderful thing. They come forth out of the fire because that's what true faith does. True faith steps out. By the way, true faith also stepped into the fire. True faith steps out of the fire because we have a God who is able to deliver us. And, and let me just say this for, for us as a church. This week we're making a decision about stepping out of faith. The pastor I've ever talked to has told me, you will go through trials like you have never experienced. You try to build. You try to go forward. Really voting on making a decision about stepping into the fire. Are you glad Jesus is with us in the fire? And we trust him to step out too. Step in with Christ, we'll step out with him as well. He'll take us through every step of the way. And I don't have a fear in the world about doing what God wants us to do because of that fact right there. True faith is willing to trust God in the fire, uh, stepping into the fire and coming out of the fire. Well, I love what the Bible says. They'd seen that the fire had no power over them. Fire had no ability to change them, had no ability to alter them. Not a hair on their head was singed. Not a thread on their clothes was burned. And they didn't even smell like they'd been around fire. Something they noted in particular. Some of you, that's all you smell like during the winter. Because of the furnaces at your house. I'm glad we have a God who can deliver us through the fires of life. Let's look at the last thing and we'll be done. Faith stands up. True faith speaks up. True faith steps out. Here's the final thing I want you to see. True faith shines forth. The last part of this chapter, we're almost done. Appreciate your patience. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God. Blessed. Here's a pagan king singing praise to God. What's amazing to me about this, thousands of people from all over his kingdom, they're still there. Boy, by this point, they've got the popcorn out and they're just awesome right they look at the king emperor of the nation and he stands up after god shows himself strong he's not blessing the idol he's blessing god blessed be the god of shadrach meshach and abednego who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have charged changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they may not serve nor worship any god except their own god and therefore i make a decree that every people nation and language would speak anything amiss against the god of shadrach meshach and abednego shall be cut in pieces here he goes again and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Suffice it to say, at the end of the story, a story that began with a 90-foot statue and a king trying to get all the nations of the world to bow down to a false god, at the end of the story, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to put their faith in an almighty God, God delivered them, and their testimony shone forth so brightly that the king of the nations of the world stands up, praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, hey, nobody gets to talk against, against this God. Hey, religious freedom for the people of God in the kingdom of Babylon from this point on. He promotes them in the kingdom and blesses them in the kingdom. God has called us to shine as lights in this world. And one of the best ways you will be able to shine your light by trusting God through your trials. You go to one more verse. That's all we have time for. It's at the end of Daniel. You have it in your notes. If you like, I'd like you to turn there, though. We're already in Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Last chapter. 
Daniel chapter 12 and verse number 3. Read this out loud with me in conclusion. Daniel 12 verse 3. Let's read it out loud together. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Never hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again in the Bible. Their legacy is sealed because they trusted God through the fire. You may not accomplish much in life. You willing to trust God through your trial, God uses it. Shine the light of Christ to people lost in darkness. You have lived a life worth living. What does your faith look like? It's put through the fire. Fire does not show us anything what's already there. It shows us what we're made of. What are you made of? Because if you're doing it all yourself, you're doing it the wrong way. But if you learn to trust God with your trial, you can come forth to the fire the way God intended. May God help us to do so. Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I have a time of invitation here. Listen, I don't know what everybody's going through. I know what some of you are going through. I don't know what everybody's going through, but some of you are really going through the trial. Some of you have a loved one that's really going through a trial right now.